Welcome to Portraits of Honor. We stand in the swiftly fading shadow of our World War II veterans and heroes who united for a single purpose, to honor life, liberty, and justice for all. They were soldiers and sailors, airmen and mechanics, nurses and pilots, radio operators, ordinary people who did extraordinary things. Our mission is to preserve their stories, to bring their experiences to life for a new generation. This is our tribute, our act of honor. Through their words, we explore the essence of honor and remember the sacrifices that were made. For just the cost of a cup of coffee each month, you can help us preserve their stories. Visit portraitsofhonor.com to learn more. Join us as we journey back in time, as we listen, learn, and remember. This is Portraits of Honor. Let the stories of these heroes begin. This interview is presented in two parts. This is part two. This episode explores the extraordinary life of Morton Waitsman, an Army veteran who played a vital role on D-Day as a communications specialist. From landing on Omaha Beach and intercepting German codes, to facilitating critical communications with the French Resistance, his journey is a riveting tale of courage, dedication, and resilience. As we explore his transition from soldier to scholar, his inspiring story connects the battlefields of World War II to the halls of Emory University, blending history with a legacy of academia. This interview was recorded on September 21, 2022, in Atlanta, Georgia. Anyway, going back to the fighting, back to December of 1944, just before the Battle of the Ball, a Battle of Ball, we succeeded in launching into Germany and getting as far as the Rohr River near a city in Germany called Julich. And in Julich, uh, we were on one side of the Rohr River, the Germans in Julich were on the other side, and the Battle of the Bulge was launched mid-December or so of 1944. And General Gerhardt, our commanding general, said, we're digging in here, and we're not retreating. Uh, essentially, he gave us a stand and fight or die order. There's no retreat from the Battle of the Bulge once the Germans were. They rapidly crossed Allied forces north of us, and we were dug into our area, and they didn't, the main, the main pincer of the movement didn't hit us, but it hit further north of us. So we were able to stand where we were dug in at the Roar River uh, through the whole time of the Battle of the Bulge. Now that was no easy time because that was getting into Christmas and New Year's in 1944-1945. At that time, the European Weather Bureau, the most severe snowstorm in the history since 75 or 100 years, hit that area. And we dug in two-man foxholes to help keep each other warm, essentially. And there we were for that whole period of time during the Battle of the Bulge. The Germans were merciless in many interesting ways, Al. One example, we had an outhouse near where we were dug in, and the Germans became aware of that outhouse, and they zeroed in on it. 
a couple of guys were killed leaving or going to that place. Uh, they could see us across the river. And we soon learned we had to do other ways we had to take care of our stuff. And finally, the Battle of the Bulge, you know the main purpose of the Battle of the Bulge was to capture Liège and Antwerp in Belgium. Liège had the fuel dumps and ammunition dumps, and Antwerp was a seaport where Hitler was determined he would launch into England. That's how forward-thinking they were. Uh, this is my, my own experience with that, what they were trying to do. They never did accomplish that. They never reached Liège. They ran out of fuel, were able to neutralize it, and finally into late January, early December, or early February of 45, we were able to continue our march into Germany. And I want to go into that in a little bit of detail if you want me to. If you want me to. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. From your perspective, yeah. Uh, yeah. In every t I've told this story many times. And each time I do, I come across the same damn internal turmoil that does hit me. So, what do you mean? Your, your being here is not without internal stress to me, but it's always that way with me. But I know I have to tell this story. It's part of history, and the history has to be told. In late January of 1945, we were ordered, now remember, I'm with the, with the 115th at that time. I'm their communications person. We launched into, um, we were in Germany already, and we were ordered to capture this town of Mönchengladbach, Mönchengladbach in Germany. And Mönchengladbach, the, one, of, one of the things that was there was the home of Paul Joseph Goebbels. He was a propaganda minister under Adolf Hitler, and there was a right, right uh, place, which is R-H-E-Y-T, the German word. And we were ordered to capture that place, um, which we did. Uh, the Germans were still kind of, they were in route, but they did stand to fight where they could. We weren't there. Uh, their uh, homeland, and they were fighting for their homeland. And it, at uh, at Goebbels' home, uh, there, it was about March 1st or 2nd of uh, 1945. From there, we were launched into a place in Germany called Binslaken, uh, uh, and that was our first exposure to the Holocaust because it's locking in Germany. Uh, we came across this big barn area, and we got, we got through the walls of that barn area, and all of a sudden there were thousands of dead bodies in this, this large group of people. Gasoline had been poured on these people who couldn't tell anything about what they were, who they were, except they were literally cremated on the ground in, in, in this locket. Our first exposure, because they were identified as, uh, as uh, Jews who had been forced into this area. 
well, we moved on from Ninslaken and captured several French, uh, German villages, and every every town, every town and village we came into in Germany, there was a fresh mound of dirt near the city hall area, whatever whatever they called their city hall, and we dug up a few of these and always several bodies. Turned out, and we were. We were told of this later on, but we came to our own conclusions. Uh, they couldn't get these people to the concentration camps fast enough, so they murdered them and put them in mass graves in every single town and village. Uh, the Holocaust. We finally got across several places in Germany and got to a place near Hanover in Germany. And just south of Hanover, we liberated this one particular uh, forced labor camp. Uh, and we knew exactly where we were because it was across of the Harz Mountains and the Weser River near Hanover, south of Hanover. Do you remember the name of it? Yeah, yeah. Um, there was no name to it. It just it, it was a forced labor camp. Uh, Last year, uh, I went to Hanover. Yeah. But very close to the Bergen-Belsen, by the way. And we went to a place where there was a camp, and so we got to Dora visit. more. No, no, this is not Dora Middlebow yet. We're coming to Dora Middlebow. Uh, but I want to get to about toward the end of March of 1945. You know, this this old brand is trying to think of this stuff. I, I have our time with my name sometimes, but before we got got there, we were just before we got to this place near Hanover. Actually, was about the time of uh, Passover in the Jewish faith. Passover was the time when the Israelites were relieved from their slavery in Egypt, and we were told that the Jewish soldiers could come back to Munchengladbach. Hitler, uh, uh, um, Goebbels' home, and celebrate Passover. I have pictures of this. You're welcome to see too. And there we were, and several Jews who would be re released from their uh, forced labor camps, and in a few cases, a uh, concentration camp, knew what we were doing. We made clear they wanted to come back with the Jewish from these camps because. They were just liberated from their own slavery, and they wanted to come back to us to celebrate Passover. This was about the middle of March, toward the end of March of 45. And they did. We, there were sick, sick people, they were emaciated people and sick people, but they didn't care, they wanted to go back. We took them, we carried them in gurneys and whatever, whatever it took to get them there. We had uh, two and a half ton trucks. Helped uh, We got back to Munchengladbach and had our service. And when when the when the uh, service was over that next day or so, we were trying to take them back to where we had picked them up. Several died on the way. They were so sick. They, it was. Now these were all. You know, I'm I'm just a 19 year old, 20 year old kid. Uh, you know, they, these are very impactful. 
incidents that took place in my own personal life, as did all the other GIs. We finally got back and to this place near, near Hanover, the Vizier River in the Hartz Mountains. I was giving this talk to a Baptist church here in Atlanta several years ago, and this man came up to me. Uh, Thank you for liberating me and my mother from the camp. He knew what I was talking about because I was describing the geography of it. And Matt Sikorsky was his name. He was a Roman Catholic from Warsaw, Poland. He and his mother and father were put on a, by the Nazis on a, on a train in Warsaw to be sent to a forced labor camp. His father was taken off. I'm, scattergunning here, I'm sorry, but it's the way it was. They were taken off that train at Sachsenhausen, where he found out later on his father was murdered at Sachsenhausen, and he and his mother were at this camp uh, near the Vesa River in the Harts Mountains. I went to Sachsenhausen too. Yeah. Well, his father was murdered at that camp, as were so many others. Um, we were ordered at that point to move south about 30 or 40 kilometers, about 10, 15, 20 miles, to a place uh, in, uh, uh, that was called actually Dora Mittelbau. Uh, we got to Dora Mittelbau in France and Germany, and the big walled camp area. Did you get to Dora Mittelbau? It's part of Buchenwald. Were you in Buchenwald? Dormitabau was, was, was a northern segment of Buchenwald, actually. There were about 15, 20 German machine gunners at the end sentry post of this place. Well, we were pretty, we knew how to handle that stuff. Our tank corps came up and blew down the walls and along with these machine gunners. And we entered that camp two or three thousand dead bodies out there in the open. And I found out pretty soon what most of them, how come most of them were there. At Dora Middlebaum, part of Buchenwald, we were ordered to go to the crematorium in that camp. There were crematoria, no gas chambers, but there were crematoria. We opened up the ovens of the crematoria and there were hot, of the, about 10 of them. The middle one was cold, and Al Ungerleiter, our commanding officer, ordered us to approach this oven. We had to open up the doors of them all. We opened up this one. He alerted us. Where's that picture that was here of you? I have a picture of about several of us were ordered to open up the door gingerly. We had our M1 Garand rifles with eight shots in each one. Opened up the doors and there was a German officer uh, with a Luger pistol in his hand. And he, he knew the Americans were coming. He was going to kill as many as he could. He knew they'd opened up that oven. We emptied our rifles and he never fired a shot. I have a picture of the nine of us, eight of us who were in that group. And we went from there. There were barracks there. People there were more dead than alive. We liberated more dead bodies than alive ones. And I radioed Hanover for our medical people to get down here quickly, what we discovered. 
don't touch them, give them sips of water, but stay away. There was typhus and all diseases that, beyond description. So as a, as a radio operator, I did a radio for the for family to get down there, which they did the next morning. Uh, but in that same door middle ball camp, we came to a, a cave into the Hearts Mountains. It was a cave that was dug into that mountain uh, to uh, manufacture. The purpose of what we found was to manufacture the subsonic and, uh, and uh, uh, supersonic missiles that were being launched into uh, Belgium and into London. And our job was to uh, see exactly what was going on. We found that what the Germans did under uh, our, our friend uh, Werner von Braun was to have these prisoners, all these were mainly Jewish prisoners, to set dynamite inside the granite and slowly but surely build tunnels into the mountain so they could set up manufacturing zones for these missiles they were good to, to manufacture. When they set off that dynamite in other, other normal circumstances, they would say uh, fire in the hole and they would leave the area. But no, they none of them could leave. Uh, they set off the dynamite and had to breathe in that granite dust. 30,000, 33,000 people were murdered in the construction of, those, uh, of, of, the, of that manufacturing site. Accounting for most of the bodies we saw out front. Um, after doing what we could there, we were ordered on. We're moving closer and closer to the to the uh, Elbe River. One more incident: Gardelligan, a third camp, where we got close to Gardelligan, but by this time, the Germans were becoming very, very efficient. They knew we were approaching. We, along with the 28th Infantry and the Rainbow Division was there too. And we couldn't, we could do nothing. The Germans had already poured gasoline on thousands of people. They locked, locked the doors, the windows were nailed shut. They couldn't escape and they, we, we could see into that place the fire and the screaming and people being burned alive inside Cardelligan. Three incidents where we came across that sort of thing. It's Locken, Dora Middlebaugh, and Cardelligan. Finally, we left that area, had to pull ourselves together, and went on to uh, the Elbe River. By Potsdam Conference Agreement between Stalin and Roosevelt, uh, we couldn't go further than the Elbe River. We're only about maybe 50 or 75 kilometers from Berlin, but we had to stop there. And at the Elbe River, when we first got there, there were a lot of people trying, uh, trying to come across to our side, to, to the western side. Turned out the, the Germans who had crossed the Elbe River previously knew the Russians were coming at them, they would rather surrender to us. But there, many of their boats capsized in the Elbe. We were ordered to go out there in small boats and rescue as many as we could.
um, the Germans who were part of the tech, tech, technical group that was building the, the uh, V1, V2 bombs in, in, in uh, Dora-Minabau, they were identified by markings on their uniform. We put them into a special prisoner of war camp uh, for reasons. I can go into detail on this. I go and go and go and talk about this stuff. Uh, and uh, we rescued as many as we could and came back to shore and we went on to a, a certain particular spot in the, in the river where there was a broken bridge and the Russians were on one side, we were on the other. I have a pictures of greeting each other. We were giving them cigaretten and chocolatin and they gave us vodka. Uh, I hated vodka then, I hate vodka now, but I forced myself. And we were shaking hands and smiling like mad with these crazy Russians. So they had already taken Berlin and did their thing with Hitler and all the stuff in Berlin. And then we were sent from there in uh, late March or, or April of 1945 in the Army of Occupation in Bremerhaven in Bremen, Germany. We had several different assignments there. I got different pictures of all this stuff. I was never a photographer myself, so I, I never took pictures. I, was, I, I took, people gave them to me, I took them. I, I brought home a box camera because my brother wanted, asked me to do that for him. And so I remember bringing him home a box camera. I'm one of the cameras from, from Dora Middlebow. Uh, What's going on in Bremerhaven? The war's not over. The war in Europe is over because uh, early May, uh, the Germans had totally surrendered uh, and uh, the war in Europe was over. But the Japanese were still out there and several things took place in Bremerhaven. And I'll describe them to tell you what they were. We had to first of all protect the Many of the prisoners, the Jews from the various concentration camps, were put into displaced person camps, DP camps, in Bremerhaven and other places in Germany too. There were many DP camps, displaced. They were the first time they had food and shelter, and uh, and they were in these camps for long after I left Germany when the war was over, and and we also had to guard the prisoner of war camps. Uh, so we had several uh, Simons. And in Bremerhaven, there were German snipers all over the place. So we were always armed. We were always fighting the war all the time. But we're also in training for boarding ship to go to Japan uh, in Bremerhaven. Uh, the war there was not over. It was estimated a million Allied forces would die in that attempt to defeat Japan at their home. But Hiroshima and Nagasaki took place, the atom bombs, exactly. There's something poetic about this. We liberated Paris. I was with uh, liberation forces in Paris August 25th, 44. Approximately August 25th of 45, the bombs were dropped and the war in Japan was over a year later. And that was in continual, I was in continual combat. There were a few incidents involved there. Uh, with my being knocked unconscious by shell fire. I had shrapnel 
and, and, and shards in my scalp. But I was unconscious, but they were fortunately didn't go very deeply. I was back online a week later. Uh, I was able to continue fighting. So, from, the, from August of 45 to that point, it was just Army of Occupation. Uh, and boarded ship in December of 45, the SS John Erickson. It was a, it was a, naval, uh, a naval ship that took us home. It was a victory ship, and what it was. A main engine conked out there, one of the three main engines. Uh, but we had a place to sleep. We went to the galleys in the morning. How would you like your egg, soldier? Uh, and the, the weather was terrible. There were gale for, but none of us got, I recall, I didn't get seasick. Nobody did. We're going home. After two years of this crap we had to go through and got to New York January of 45, 46 and was sent on to Camp Grant, Illinois, where I was discharged. And then went on to school as soon as I could. Not long after that, was went to Florida to Miami Beach uh, because my father was in Miami. He was ill. He needed somebody to take care of him. And I met my wife, uh, wife-to-be. Married 73 years. Went on to school after that time and had to accomplish this goal of solving all the problems of blindness. We both wound up at the University of Illinois where I got my doctorate. She got her degrees and uh, went from there to Cincinnati a short time, Cleveland, Ohio, and wound up here. That's my story. That's, that's a, a full story, full life. And, wow. I can validate all of this, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you, you got your degree and your doctorate, that was in what exactly? Physiology and, uh, and uh, pharmacology. Uh, of course, with the concentrations in biochemistry. So I had all the qualifications to go on and do research, which, which was my goal. And when we wound up at Western Reserve, and uh, we were there several years, I wound up, I was working with uh, Earl Sutherland, won the, won the Nobel Prize for his work, uh, which I essentially continued when I came to uh, Ambry uh, in uh, 1962, 1962, right? Well, this was wonderful. I didn't even have to ask maybe one question, just let you tell the whole story, and yeah. you did a wonderful job with that. Uh, when when um, National Geographic was here, uh, I didn't tell all this stuff, but they asked, they asked me specific things, which I answered. And, uh, but it's on their film, what I said and what I didn't say is on that film. World War II in Europe, Voices from the Front. Let me ask you one thing, anyway, is what's your feelings about, uh, about serving in World War II, overall? Uh, you, wanna, you want some frank and candid and honest answers? When we landed on D-Day, the primary mission over everything was destroy Nazism and fascism in Europe. 
And then here we are sitting here today on this date, and there is some political encouragement of the very things that we fought and died for. Tell me about it, would you please? I would like to know the answer. What the hell is going on? That's why we need to keep telling the story of what you went through and all those who you fought with keep sharing their stories so that we don't, hopefully don't repeat it. When, when, when we hear, I don't mention names here, by the way, when Charlottesville took place and we were told by a certain leader that there were good and bad and on both sides, referring to the, to the, to the fascist forces uh, in Charlottesville, there are no good. What we fought on the beaches and who, the people who were mainly firing at us turns out to be the Waffen-SS. You know what the Waffen-SS is? They were the people, people trained under Heinrich Himmler. They were the guards in the concentration camps. They were the people whose total training was to kill as violently as they can, to kill and torture human beings as violently as they can. They put many of these people from the Waffen-SS on the beaches of Normandy in D-Day. That's whom we had to fight to survive those landings. And that's, that's who many of these people today in this environment, many of those people have that same orientation, the Waffen-SS orientation. They wanted to storm our capital, destroy our democracy. Explain it to me. This podcast is a charitable supported public service. To learn more about the veteran featured on this podcast, please go to portraitsofhonor.com. There you'll find more stories, portraits, and ways to be part of this act of honor. Every day, a few hundred World War II veterans pass away, and soon they'll all be gone. For the cost of a few cups of coffee each month, you can help us support the mission to give all these deserving veterans their portrait of honor and record and memorialize their stories forever. Please go to portraitsofhonor.com today to make your donation and show your support. Leave us a review and share this episode. By remembering the past, we can inspire a better future. Join us next time on Portraits of Honor.